The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. And we are back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but we got a really great show lined up for everyone tonight. If you're catching the uh, podcasted version of this show, thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to West of the Rockies on YouTube. That's youtube.com forward slash WOTR radio. Make sure you hit subscribe, hit the bell. So you're notified when our interviews get posted. You can also subscribe on Amazon Music, iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Just search WOTR Radio or West of the Rockies, and we should be popping up there. If you enjoyed our last interview with uh, Dr. Andrew Gallimore, where we discuss his book, Alien Information Theory, Psychedelic Drug Technologies, and the Cosmic Game, we talked about the psychedelic substance DMT, dimethyltryptamine, and how this molecule is a complete reality switch. And in his book, he does a great job at examining just how real our reality is. If you haven't, I definitely encourage people to check it out because tonight's show continues in that vein. We're going to be asking the questions, are we living in a simulation? Do multiple versions of ourselves exist in parallel universes, living out our lives in different timelines? Could this possibly explain not only the Mandela effect, but provide us with a new understanding of time and space? Our guest tonight is Rizwan Verk, and he's written this excellent book titled The Simulated Multiverse, an MIT computer scientist explores parallel universes, the simulation hypothesis, quantum computing, and the Mandela effect. Before we bring him on, I'm going to read a bit from his bio. A graduate of MIT and Stanford, Riz One, Riz Burke, is a successful entrepreneur, angel investor, best-selling author, video game industry pioneer, and independent film producer. Burke was the founder of Play Labs at MIT, which is a startup accelerator for playful technologies held on campus at the MIT Game Lab, and is currently at the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University's College of Global Futures. His previous published books include Zen Entrepreneurship, Treasure Hunt, Follow Your Inner Clues to Find True Success, The Simulation Hypothesis, and Startup Myths and Models, What You Won't Learn in Business School. Burke's video games have included Tapfish, which was downloaded over 50 million times, 
and games based on TV shows like Penny Dreadful and Grimm. Burke has been an investor and founder in many startups, including Telltale Games, creator of narrative games based on The Walking Dead and Game of Thrones, Disruptor Beam, creator of the Star Trek Timelines mobile game, Tapjoy, and Discord. He has been a producer on Thrive, What on Earth Will It Take, Knights of Badazon, the TV show The Outpost, and adaptations of the works of Philip K. Dick and Ursula K. Le Guin. So without further ado, let me welcome Rizwan Verk to West of the Rockies. Riz, thank you so much for being with us tonight. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and talk about this fascinating topic that you cover in your book, The Simulated Multiverse. I think a lot of people are going to find this conversation really interesting. So thank you so much for uh, being with us tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. As you note in your book, in the last few years, this talk about if we're living in a simulation has gotten a lot of uh, serious attention, not just from the casual researchers and uh, science fiction writers, but from people in the fields of science and academia. Why do you think this is happening now? Well, you know, when The Matrix came out uh, 20-some years ago in 1999, this idea was really considered very much the realm of science fiction. And it wasn't something that, you know, was discussed in polite academic company, except for those who studied science fiction. Uh, and so a lot has changed in the past 20 years. Um, uh, probably the biggest thing that's changed is that our computer processing has gotten much better. Uh, we all have these strong GPUs on our computers, and uh, video games has really taken off from being kind of a uh, you know a, a niche thing to being something that everybody is exposed to on a regular basis. I mean, we have a generation now that's growing up that is just as used to spending time inside Fortnite uh, as an avatar hanging out with their friends as, you know, we used to do when I was young, where we used to, you know, go out in the park and play baseball or, or whatever the case is. Uh, and so I think that, that these video games have evolved from, you know, very rudimentary flat kind of displays to, um, massively multiplayer online role-playing games. And so that is one of the things, one of the trends that has really driven, um, interest in this topic. Uh, another is that I think computer science uh, has gotten to uh, be more respected across different fields, right? And so if you go back, you know, 50 years, computer science was kind of separate from other fields and was viewed as a kind of applied mathematics. But today, you can't really work in any field without really understanding um, not just how computers can help you in terms of, you know, running programs, but more importantly, how the other sciences might have an underlying layer of information. Um, and so there was a famous venture capitalist named Mark Andreessen in Silicon Valley, and about 10 years ago he said, software is eating the world. And, and I like to say that information science is eating all the other sciences because it, it, you know, it used to be biology was about physical objects. But as we get more and more into genetics, you know, what is genetics? It's what are genes? Genes were theorized before they were actually discovered in DNA, and they were theorized as strings of information, right? So you can think of DNA as a very compact way to store biological information, and then 
what happens in biology is the processing of that information through certain algorithms. Um, and so I think there's been an awareness that, that those things which study the physical world you know, are really about studying information. And the same thing has happened in physics, where you know, physics used to be the study of physical objects, things called particles. But over the years, I think physicists have realized that as you keep opening up you know, the nested dolls and you get smaller and smaller, that there is no such thing as matter. They can't find it. And there was a famous physicist at Princeton who worked with Einstein and, and many of the other pioneers of quantum mechanics in the last century named John Wheeler, and, and he coined a phrase. Uh, and the phrase was, it from bit. And so he reached the conclusion that anything that is a physical object, like this table that I'm near, this chair that I'm sitting on, that these physical objects consist of bits of information, and that the only thing that distinguishes one particle from another particle uh, are the values of these bits. And so, you know, he realized there was no such thing as a particle. And I think today there's a thing called digital physics and information equivalence. You know, whereas before they would talk about energy and the equivalence of that to matter, like with Einstein's equation, today the cutting edge is about information, how much information is in the universe, and can that information be destroyed or will it be preserved? Uh, so that's sort of a long way of saying uh, that I, I think that uh, computer science and information theory in particular has kind of impacted all of these areas. You know, I went to school at MIT, and we had five schools, one of which was the School of Engineering, you know, the business school, and they just added uh, another school, which is the School of Computation, which is separate from the Department of Computer Science and Electrical Engineering. This is about how computers and AI are going to be used in all the other fields. So I think that's part of the reason why uh, so many people, uh, you know, are interested in this uh, coming at it from a technological, technological or scientific point of view. Uh, and of course, there are many in the worlds of philosophy and religion who have always thought this was an interesting idea. And I actually like this idea that we live in a simulation as a way of bridging the gap between all of these different worlds. You've written two books on this topic. Your first book is called The Simulation Hypothesis, and your most recent book is titled The Simulated Multiverse. How did you become interested in this and see it as a very real possibility that we could be living in a simulation much like a video game? You know, I mean, I'd always been interested in the topic going back to when I was a kid and I would watch episodes of Star Trek with, with the holodeck in there, right, which is a way that they could simulate reality even though you weren't really on a water planet, you were inside the ship. Um, and, but I had always been interested in it more from you know, the point of view of science fiction, uh, and of course with the Matrix. But uh, I spent the last decade in Silicon Valley uh, in the video game industry. So we were building video games at one point. I was part of a team that built the number one uh, game in the Apple uh, iTunes App Store when it came out. And then later I became an investor and mentor uh, to a bunch of different video game companies. And during that process, uh, I think it was in 2016, I was visiting one of those companies which was making a virtual reality game using you know, the VR headsets. And uh, they were still relatively new. Today, of course, we have Facebook changing its name you know, to Meta uh, to emphasize the metaverse, which is all about virtual reality. But back then, I, I, I was visiting this company and I played a virtual ping pong game. Uh, and I had the headset on, and I had the controller in my hand, and uh, playing the game felt so realistic that for a moment I forgot 
that I was inside a VR headset in an, the office of a tech company. I thought I was really playing table tennis against some opponent. Uh, and of course, uh, there was no opponent and there was no table, but that didn't stop me from trying to put the paddle down on the table at the end of the game, just like I might in a real game. And of course, the controller fell to the floor. I tried to lean on the table. I almost fell over. And that's when I realized that, hey, our video game technology is getting good enough such that at some point, uh, the video games will be indistinguishable from physical reality. And so I asked myself, what would it take to get there? Uh, and that really let, was the genesis of my first book, The Simulation Hypothesis. I came up with a set of stages, 10 stages of technology development that we would have to go through as a civilization to get to that point, uh, which I call the simulation point, uh, which is where we can build something like the Matrix, which is fully immersive. And in the Matrix, you'll remember Neo, Morpheus, Trinity, when they were inside the Matrix, they had a wire connected to the back of their head. And it was so realistic that they forgot there was a version of themselves outside of it. And so I started researching simulation theory, which had actually become you know, a more respected, um, uh, still fringe, but more respected in the academic community uh, as a field of study. Uh, and there was a philosopher at Oxford named Nick Bostrom, and we can talk about you know, his simulation argument in a moment. Uh, but the more I looked into it, you know, the more I realized that we could get there. Uh, and if we could get there, is it possible that other civilizations have already gotten there? Um, and then when I looked at, you know, the religious traditions, it turns out they've all been telling us that the physical world around us is not the real world. And some of them have been saying we go in as a character, we come out, we, we go back in as another avatar, and, you know, avatar is derived from the Hindu term, which means to descend, right? And, and that's what we do when we take on the identity, a digital identity within a video game. Uh, and, and some of the religions have been telling us that everything we do is being recorded. Not only that, but if you talk to near experiencers, you know, they say they have to watch all of that, not just watch it, but experience it. You know, all of these different aspects uh, of reality. And, and if you think about the search for truth, in the West, we think of it only as science, right? But there's a long history in religious traditions. That's what the mystics who were at the, at the root of all these religions were trying to do, is they were trying to find out the true nature of reality and our place in it. And then the philosophers were doing the same thing, using different tool sets. And so I came to the conclusion that simulation theory you know, was one way to uh, thread together all these things that look like they're different, uh, but really, perhaps we're all just trying to find out what's, what's going on in the world around us. And this model was one of the first, uh, I believe, that really could do that. Um, and I looked at quantum mechanics and quantum physics and all the weirdness that's there. All of it kind of fit together in this idea that we are inside a simulated uh, universe. Uh, but uh, yeah, obviously, the computers that would run that are way more sophisticated than what we think of as computers today, just in the same way that our computers today are way more sophisticated than the computers that ran Pac-Man, you know, back in 1983 or, or whenever it was. Yeah. So anyway, that's how I got into the, the topic in the first place. What do traditional Eastern and Western religions have to say that would support the idea that we're living in some type of reality that is not the ultimate one? Can you expand a little bit more on that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you think of, if we divide up the religions into kind of two big groups, of course, there's a lot more religions than that on earth. But when you look at the bigger religions, you've got kind of the Judeo-Christian line of religions, and then you've got the Eastern religions of of, um, Hinduism and Buddhism. And in those religions, they explicitly say that the world around us is Maya, which is an old um, Sanskrit word, which means a carefully crafted illusion. And in fact, you know, within the Buddhist traditions, they use a very strong metaphor of dreaming, right? And so Buddha means literally to awaken, as in to awaken from a dream. And and we've all had that experience when we're inside a dream and we think it's real and we wake up and then we realize, oh, it wasn't so real. And so the Eastern traditions have been telling us this all along. And they've also been saying that, you know, everything we do plays a role in what's going to happen next. And, uh, you know, even though there's disagreements between the religions, like even between Buddhism and Hinduism, one of them has an eternal soul that goes back into and plays these different roles. Uh, and the other one says, well, it's really just information. And what is this information that goes back and forth? It's all the stuff that you've done to date. So it's what they call karma, uh, which really is very much like information stored on a cloud server somewhere that is available do- from your gameplay, but also for the next time you play the game, the same way that we store our information you know, up on the server so that we can resume a session or restart a session. And so, of course, dreams, and you know, there's also this idea of the lila, or the grand play, uh, which is another term in the Hindu Vedas going back 5,000 years, which talks about uh, what we think of as reality is like a stage play. And of course, that's the same metaphor that Shakespeare used you know, many uh, centuries later, when he said all the world's a stage and the men and women are merely players. But we have to think of these as metaphors because, you know, they were written down uh, thousands of years ago. And in, in the Western traditions, if we look at, you know, Christianity and Islam in particular, uh, they have this idea, uh, and with Judaism as well, this idea of the book of life. And the book of life, depending on who you talk to, uh, is either just a list of people's names who would get into heaven or if you kind of delve into it a little more uh, and you realize that it's actually a series of deeds uh, of the things that you have done in your life. Uh, And in Islam, they're actually very uh, specific about this. There are angels um, that have names and in the West, they're called recording angels. And so why are they called recording angels? Because they record what you've done. And so, you know, if you were to really build something like that, you know, would you have, you know, in the Islamic traditions, there's two angels writing down everything you do. So, well, you can't take that literally, right? It doesn't make sense to have 14 billion angels sitting around and just writing stuff. That uh, metaphor of a book is something that could be understood back at the time when these religions were formed. But, uh, you know, we have to think of it in terms of a broader reality. And so what, what they call the scroll of deeds in the Islamic traditions in the book of life um, in the Christian and Judaism uh, are both metaphors for something that preserves what had happened. Um, and if you think about that in modern terms, it's very much like what we do when we play video games. Today, we stream those video games on Twitch, and we stream them elsewhere. And, you know, my uh, nephew, when he was like three, four years old, instead of wanting to watch movies, would like tell, tell my, uh, his father, my brother, uh, hey, can you put on that YouTube video of that man and that woman playing Star Wars video games, right? So they would literally sit there and just watch them play the video game. Um, 
And so that's how we do it today is we record that entire 3D environment. Um, and then a few years ago, I was involved with a company that could take a game like World of Warcraft or League of Legends. Uh, Fortnite, I think, was just, just coming out at that time. But they could take that and then you could put on a virtual reality headset and they could replay uh, the game uh, play based upon what happened before. And you could watch it not just as yourself, but you could pick another point. So if you think of a game like Counter-Strike Global Offensive, where you're like, you know, one of these army guys and you're shooting against each other, you could basically be the guy you shot and you could go back and replay it. And so this reminded me so much of the life review that many NDEers, near-death experiencers, have talked about. You know, one of my friends is Damian Brinkley, who wrote uh, a, a pretty well-known book in the uh, NDE world called Saved by the Light, which was a bestseller back in the 90s. And, you know, he, he talks about a panoramic 360-degree holographic life review where he, he had to go through uh, and actually re-experience what every event in his life was like from the other person's point of view. And in his case, he was actually in the army, so he actually did shoot people. So my example, there's not an arbitrary one when I talk about a video game where you're shooting. He actually had to experience what it was like to be shot by himself. And and so, you know, for that to happen, you know, I'm an engineer and a scientist by training, and so I always think, what is the mechanism? Could this really happen? Could this really be true? How would it be done? Right? Well, it can be done if you had much more sophisticated uh, computers that were keeping track of this entire 3D environment and recording it. Uh, and by this entire 3D environment, I mean that which we think of as the physical universe, uh, which may not be physical at all, is what physics is telling us. So anyway, that's an overview of the different aspects uh, of religions and, and how they've been telling us all along that we do not live in the real world, that there's another world beyond this one. And from there, we will have a very different perspective than we have while we're here. And I think if any of those religions were created today, they wouldn't use the metaphor of the book or the stage play. They might still use that of the dream or the movie, which is a 20th century metaphor. Uh, but they would use a 21st century metaphor, which is that what we are in an interactive stage play slash dream where we can all make choices and all of those things are being recorded. And what does that sound like? An interactive, massively multiplayer online video game. Yeah, I think we should definitely take into account the time during which a lot of these books were written. I agree if these religions were to be birthed today, we would see terms like the cloud or download or other similar terms. Now, Bringing this topic to more current times, you mentioned Nick Bostrom. Can you tell me a bit about him and his simulation argument? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, his simulation argument came out in a paper that he published in 2003. And so Bostrom is a philosopher uh, at Oxford. I don't know if he was at Oxford at the time. Maybe he joined Oxford later. Uh, but, uh, you know, within that, paper, he made a couple of interesting points. And it's probably because of him that mo more academics have started to take this more seriously. Um, and in fact, you know, Elon Musk had a famous statement he made a few years back where he said, the chances that we are in base reality, meaning the chances that we are not in a simulation, is one in billions. 
And so that ended up bringing Bostrom's argument to a whole new group of people who had never heard of it, uh, because then we were all like, well, what do you mean? The chances that we're in reality is one in billions. Where did you get that math? Well, he was really relying on Bostrom's simulation argument. And so what, what Nick Bostrom said was that if you have a technological civilization like ours, uh, then the computing power will get better and better. And at some point, that civilization will be able to create completely simulated worlds with completely simulated beings within them. He actually said there's three possibilities. One possibility is the civilization never gets to that point, which I call the simulation point. Uh, he used a different term. I think he used post-human for that. Uh, and, and why would they not get there? Well, maybe they blow themselves up or you know something else happens that pushes them back to the Stone Age uh, or for whatever reason, they never get there. If that's the case, then nobody ever builds simulations. His second option in his what's called the trilemma, uh, because there's three options, was that civilization gets there, but that they decide not to make any simulations at all. Now, why would that happen? Who knows? Maybe they passed some laws that you can't simulate human beings. Right? The, a movie that's out now that's quite popular is uh, Dune. And I don't know if you've ever read the original science fiction novel it's based on, but in that world, they didn't really talk about it in this uh, part one of the movie, uh, which just came out, but it was there was a rule, it was almost like a religion that said, thou shalt not create a computer that simulates the human mind, right? Because there was a whole history there of why, why they did that. Um, so in that second option, obviously simulations are possible, but nobody creates any. Uh, so the chances that we're in simulation is very low. And he said, otherwise, the third option must be true, if those, one of those other two aren't true. And the third option, civilization gets to the simulation point. They create not just one simulation, but all you need to do to create another simulation is what? Just fire up another server, uh, you know, like an AWS, uh, Amazon <laughs> Web Services cloud server. And each time you fire up a new server, you're creating a new civilization. Uh, albeit one that is simulated. And how many beings are there in each of these? Well, you could have billions you know, of beings within billions of simulations. So you could literally have trillions of beings out there that are simulated beings uh, that are inside these simulations. And so Bostrom's argument was uh, that in that scenario, we are definitely most likely in a simulation. And why? Well, he just did some simple math and he said, if there are billions of simulations with trillions of beings, and you are a being, and you are in a world, are you more likely to be a simulated being in a simulated world, of which there are trillions, or are you likely to be uh, a physical being in the physical world, of which there's only one, by the way, in, in his model, right? And so it was a statistical argument. It was kind of a clever uh, use of statistics to say that, but basically, if we boil it down from these three options... Uh, and point number three, which is the one that everybody focuses on, um, in that scenario, what he's saying is if any civilization ever reaches the simulation point, ever, anywhere in the galaxy, could have been a million years ago, right? Then we are most likely in a simulation now. So, you know, when I looked into that, I said, well, you know, this ties very closely to uh, what I'd been doing, which was projecting forward from today that says, how long will it take us? to get to the simulation point? What technologies would we still need to develop? And we're not there yet, right? Even though I had the VR experience with ping pong, uh, with uh, table tennis, and even though you know Facebook is now pushing Oculus and the metaverse, uh, we're not at the point where 
you completely will forget that you're in the physical reality, but give it another decade or two or three, or even if it takes another hundred years, uh, it is within sight. So we are not that far, cosmologically speaking, from being able to build these extremely realistic simulations. And so if you go back to Bostrom's argument, if we can get there in, say, another hundred years, who's to say that uh, another civilization in a, in a galaxy, let's say, that has been around a million years longer than us, didn't already get there and didn't already create a whole bunch of simulations, in which case we're, we're in option three, which is there are way more simulated worlds and beings than there are physical ones, and you are most likely in a simulation. So that was his main argument uh, that has gotten a lot of attention uh, and I think has been responsible for, for getting uh, this, our, this idea that we live in the simulation out there. It's fascinating and a little bit scary at the same time to think that perhaps civilization has advanced that much and we are the ones living in a simulated world. We'll explore that further here in a moment, but first I wanted to ask, in your book you cover a lot of quantum mechanics and some of the uh, baffling findings and mysteries in this theory that could point to us living in this multiverse. So first of all, what is the multiverse and how those quantum mechanics fit into this conversation? Sure. So the multiverse is an idea that there are multiple parallel realities or universes, or if you look into it more closely, multiple parallel timelines, right? Uh, and probably the best way to think about it is uh, today, the idea of the multiverse you know, has become popular. It came from quantum mechanics, uh, but it's used within science fiction all the time. And so if, if you, your listeners or any of their kids watch superhero shows on the CW, like The Flash or Superman and Lois or Supergirl or Arrow, there's what they call the Arrowverse, which basically is all of these different shows take place in the same universe. But uh, more than that, there are different timelines. And so on our timeline, you know, Superman is Clark Kent, uh, but in another Earth, it may be somebody else that was sent from the planet Krypton. And in another Earth, you know, the Flash is somebody different. And in another Earth, Batman might be somebody different. So each of these uh, verses within the multiverse, you can think of as different timelines. And, you know, now it turns out this is being taken up in the movies. There's a, a new movie, a Spider-Man movie coming out soon called uh, No Man, No Way Home. And in that, not only are they going to have the current actor who plays Spider-Man, uh, Tom Holland, but some of the previous actors who played Spider-Man, including Andrew Garfield, are supposedly um, in, um, uh, in the movie and, and potentially Tobey Maguire as well. And well... Can you really have three Spider-Mans? Well, it turns out they're from three different timelines, right? And the same thing with Batman. There's a new Batman movie coming out, and there's a new movie called The Flash, and in it, they're bringing back Michael Keaton, who was, you know, the old Batman from uh, the 80s and 90s, you know, which, you know, I'm old enough to have watched that uh, at theaters. And so having different versions of the superheroes is a way of saying, here are these different timelines. Uh, and in the timelines, the events proceeded uh, differently, uh, so that everything is a little bit different. Now, how does that tie to quantum mechanics, right? So that's the second part of your question. Well, there's some aspects of quantum mechanics that are just really strange, uh, and they've been confirmed by experiment, but nobody understands why. 
And these things are so strange that they even made Einstein nervous, right? And Einstein said, God doesn't play dice with the universe. Uh, therefore, he never really bought into quantum mechanics. But over and over, experiments have shown that the predictions of quantum mechanics are correct. Um, and even uh, Richard Feynman, who was a famous physicist at Caltech and Nobel Prize winner, said nobody understands quantum mechanics. And what he meant was nobody really understands how it works or why it works the way it does. And at the heart of it is this mystery called quantum indeterminacy. Uh, and uh, it's better known as the observer effect. And probably the easiest way to talk about it is with the example of Schrodinger's cat, which I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of. But basically, this was a thought experiment proposed by uh, Erwin Schrodinger, one of the kind of founders of, of quantum mechanics. And he said if there was a cat that was in a box with some poison and some radioactive material that has a 50% chance of uh, letting out the poison uh, in about an hour, after one hour, is the cat alive or dead? Now, common sense tells us. The cat is either alive or dead. We just don't know because we haven't looked in the box, but it can't be both. Quantum mechanics tells us something different. It tells us that the cat is in a state of superposition, which means that it's both alive and dead until somebody opens the box and looks. Uh, but until that moment, both of those possibilities exist. And so this has been called the collapse of the probability wave, which, again, some of your listeners may have heard of, uh, which gets back to this idea that there are multiple probable realities. But it turns out more and more scientists uh, have bought into the idea that what this is really saying is that we live in a quantum multiverse. And what that means is there's one timeline where the cat is alive and one timeline where the cat is dead. It's splitting off. And so every time something happens in our universe, a quantum decision happens, the universe splits off into multiple timelines or multiple parallel universes, and that this continues to happen all the time. And so that is the idea of the quantum multiverse, which, as I said, has probably become one of the most popular explanations for what the heck is going on. Now, it turns out that the simulation hypothesis, and I talk about this more in my second book, the simulated multiverse provides a different framework for how all of that could happen, right? So if you think of a, the probability wave, what does probability mean? Like if you roll a dice only once, then probability doesn't have a definition. So in fact, you know, probability comes from, um, I think it was a French mathematician uh, who said, if you roll a dice, you have six probable futures, right? And he said, yes, a chance, one in six chance of you getting any of those. And so probability means if you roll the dice six times, this is what should happen, right? And you can't have probability if you don't do something multiple times. Um, and then in, in the multiverse idea, the one objection that some people have to the multiverse idea is, well, how is it that the universe is splitting off all this time? We don't know of any process in nature that can clone like an entire tree in an instant, let alone an entire planet, let alone an entire universe. And so this looks like a dilemma because you have these two popular interpretations of the, the fundamental problem in quantum mechanics, which is the observer effect or quantum indeterminacy. Well, it turns out the problem can be solved by saying that we are actually in a simulated multiverse. Uh, and when we say things are probable, it's just like in a video game where there are many options that can be followed in many timelines, but when we're playing the game, we only render one of those possibilities, right? So it becomes a rendering mechanism 
that shows only that which is observed, which is the reason we're able to make games today that are very popular, like Fortnite or PUBG, because your avatar is in this world, and if you and I are playing the game, we're both rendering it on our own computers, and we're sending the information back and forth, but we only need to render the pixels that our avatars can see. And so the golden rule of video game development is render only that which can be seen at that moment in time. Otherwise, there would just be way too many pixels, even for our modern computers, to be able to render. So it's an optimization technique. And so if you look at uh, quantum mechanics in the physical world, not as particles, going back to what I talked about earlier with John Wheeler, who said it from bits, uh, but we view it as information. He said there is no such thing as particles. It's just information that gets rendered as needed. Uh, and so in the multiverse idea, if when we're saying that the universes are splitting off, what's really happening is uh, you're just cloning information, right? That's something that can be done very quickly inside a CPU or a GPU, even in our computers. It's like a core function, which is cloning bits of information very quickly. And so, you know, all of this starts to make more sense. Like, like when I was at MIT, my professors taught me that you know, a good model will take something that looks unexplainable and give you a way to explain it. And that's what the simulation theory in general and the simulated multiverse in particular have done, is taken all of these weird behaviors in quantum mechanics and put them into a framework where it actually makes some sense from a scientific or technological perspective in terms of how it might all actually be working. Reading your book really made me think and question a lot of these things that deal with uh, aspects of our reality and how it could be a simulation. And I think what made it easier is the times that we're living in where, as you say, we interact with computers and we have access to things like the internet and uh, video games. We're starting to understand how a lot of these things work. And then you can apply this knowledge to these ideas of living in a simulation and see how this could very well be possible. I don't know if you're familiar with a movie called Strange Days. I believe it came out somewhere around 1995. I don't think I've seen that one. Well, real quick, in that movie, what is happening is uh, it takes place in the future that being the year 1999 and the last days of December. In the movie, society has reached this point where people are able to put this squid-looking electronic device on their head, and it sends these signals to your brain, and the user is able to live out experiences. So, for example, if I went skydiving and I put this thing on, I could record the experience of skydiving. And in the movie they're recorded onto these small DV tapes. So basically, it would record my memory of the skydive straight from my cerebral cortex. I could then pass on this tape to someone else and they could experience the skydive, not just visually, but they would experience the physical sensations like if they were doing it themselves. That, that's very uh, you know, similar to this new book called Ready Player Two where they use a brain-computer interface, and you can record anything that happens, you know, whether it's going to 
Mexico and eating Mexican food in Mexico City or any kind of, you know, sexual activity, any, any of that stuff can be recorded and replayed. And it, it's a kind of singularity, right? Because after that, the question is, what will people do? If you can experience anything from, you know, within your home with a headset, uh, and it feels just like the real thing, kind of like in Total Recall, you know, the old Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, which was based on the work of Philip K. Dick, who we can talk about in a minute. Uh, if your brain thinks you've had that experience, then have you had that experience? So, yeah, that, that's a really interesting movie. I haven't seen that one, but uh, I do devote a bunch of time to, you know, these types of films uh, that depict this uh, within, uh, particularly within the new book, The Simulated Multiverse. Now, you mentioned Philip K. Dick. And I want to read a quote that was in your book, and he said this back in 1977 during a lecture in France. Philip K. Dick said, We are living in a computer program reality that in some past time point, a variable was changed, reprogrammed as it were, and that because of this, an alternate world branched off. Now, we're talking about this multiverse theory. And here we have Philip K. Dick talking about this in 1977. Can you tell me how you came across Philip K. Dick's writings and his own ideas of us possibly living in this computer program reality, as he called it? Yeah, you know, Philip K. Dick was a visionary in many ways. And of course, you know, he's the author of, of the books that led to movies like Blade Runner, Total Recall that I just mentioned. Uh, the recent uh, very successful Amazon series, The Man in the High Castle, uh, which is about an alternate timeline where the Germans and the Japanese won World War II. And what would that be like? And and turns out, you know, I, I came across his work while I was researching the previous book, The Simulation Hypothesis, because he was one of the first people in modern times, uh, not the only one, but one of the first to really say, that we were living in this computer program reality. And you can find uh, video clips from that talk online and you can see the audience thinking, this guy is just nuts. Like, what is he talking about, right? Uh, and so I interviewed his wife, uh, Tessa B. Dick, uh, when I was researching the first book. And you know that quote has become quite famous. And, and you, you kind of went through more of the quote, but usually people just remember that first part. We are living in a computer program reality and not the second part, which is, all about variables being changed. So, you know, when I had interviewed his wife, you know, she said, and she's written a couple of good books uh, about uh, Philip K. Dick, and, and she said that he actually came to believe that we were living in multiple timelines and that the man in the high castle in particular was a real timeline where the Germans and the Japanese actually won World War II, but that there was someone outside of the timeline who rewound that timeline and reran it again. Uh, and this happened with big events, but it could happen with small events, too. Like, uh, there was a movie a few years ago called The Adjustment Bureau, which starred uh, Matt Damon and Emily Blunt. And turns out that's based on a Philip K. Dick short story called The Adjustment Team. And he wrote that because he had an experience where, like, his in his bathroom, he knew there was a light that was like a chain light. Remember those old chain lights he used to pull? And right. he went in, and it was no longer a chain light. It was a a, a light switch, uh, or maybe it was the other way around, but it was, he remembered, you know, doing it hundreds of times one way and it turns out it was different. So he, he wondered if someone hadn't gone back in time and changed this little reality. And so he gave this speech and, and, you know, when I wrote the first book, 
simulation hypothesis. I was just more concerned about, hey, this is a fun way to talk about simulation and music well well known science fiction writer. But when I was working on the second book, I went back to his talk and I and I listened to the whole thing and I read the transcripts. Turns out that line was ad libbed, by the way. It wasn't in the original <laughs> transcript uh, that we are living in a computer programmed reality. Um, but turns out what he was really talking about was not just that, it was about this changing of variables. And he said, you know, the only clue we have is when some variable is altered, some change in our reality occurs. We would have the sense that we were reliving the same events, saying the same things, and we would have feelings of deja vu. And he said, I submit to you that these feelings of deja vu are a clue that at some point in the past, and then we get on with the rest of the quote as you just said it, which is uh, about uh, in the past, some variable was changed and a new alternate timeline or, or alternate reality, as he called it, was branched off. And so I found this really fascinating. And, and, and in fact, part of the reason why I wrote this new book, The Simulated Multiverse, was because he was talking about not just a multiverse, but one where somebody can change variables and rerun it. And that is exactly what we do when we run simulations. Right, if we were running a simulation of the weather, uh, or a simulation of you know climate, long-term climate, or a fruit fly populations, we would run those things, and we would change the variables, and we would run them again. And why do we do that? Well, we do it for to get the most likely outcome or the most optimal outcome. So you know, I, I found that that he was talking about this idea way back when, but it really makes sense when you pair it you know, with our current video game technology and ability to run multiple simulations. Uh, and that actually led me very much to to writing uh, this book. And so the other thing that he said was we would just need to find a group of people like him because he said he remembered this alternate timeline. So we would need to find a group of people who remembered a previous present, meaning uh, a version of the present that had a different history than what he called the consensus gentium uh, reality, which is what the majority remembers. Well, it turns out now we have people online that remember things differently, which is the Mandela effect. And we can talk about that if you want to go into that next. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. It seems, as you mentioned, that one of the signs that would point to us living in a simulation is when a variable is changed. And in your book, you write about the Mandela effect and people who experience this feeling of deja vu as well. Can you tell me about that and how that can be interpreted as a variable being changed in the past that would affect the present and have a group of people thinking that things were different somehow? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when I wrote the first book, I finished it book was a, a big success. And I thought, okay, I'm done with this simulation theory stuff for a while. Anyway, <laughs> I could go back, you know, to uh, my real career <laughs> in Silicon Valley. And uh, I was in Mountain View, which is the headquarters of Google. And uh, a friend of mine uh, who had just taken a job at Google uh, named Bruce had uh, came to visit Mountain View. He lived in Boston, but he was now a Google employee. So we met for coffee. And of course, we were talking about my book and he was a computer science major from MIT, just like I was. And he said, you know, have you heard of this thing called the Mandela effect? I said, yeah, I've heard of it, but I, I kind of dismissed it. Like I think most scientifically minded people did is just a case of false memories. And he said, well, you know, the simulation theory is actually the best explanation for the Mandela effect. You should look into it some more. And so I did. And so, you know, the Mandela effect came about because there was a group of people who remembered 
Nelson Mandela having died in prison in like the 1980s or 90s. But of course, in our reality, he didn't die in prison. He was released in the 90s and he became the first black president of South Africa. And he died in like 2013. And it turns out there's a whole bunch of these types of effects where a subset of people remembered events happening differently. Um, and these range from small things like, is there something called Jiffy peanut butter or is it just Jiff peanut butter or the Bernstein bears, which many people remember as the Bernstein bears, but it's actually stain, S-T-A-I-N, to movie lines like in The Empire Strikes Back where uh, uh, Darth Vader is supposed to have said, you know, Luke, I am your father. But if you go back and watch it, he, he doesn't say that. He says, no, I am your father. So it's a different line to entire episodes of Star Trek that people swear they saw, but which never existed to even entire movies. Um, uh, and so this effect was fascinating. And uh, I, I began to research it and realized that it wasn't just, you know, a bunch of people misremembering small things. In some cases, there were, you know, fairly major uh, uh, things that were could have been events in that person's life that would cause them to pay attention. Um, you know, for example, certain evangelical Christians who followed the Reverend Billy Graham, who swear that he died many years earlier and that they watched his funeral on TV with very specific memories, just like people with very specific memories of Nelson Mandela uh, and his wife giving talks uh, at his funeral way back in the 80s or 90s. Uh, and, and so I found that this effect you know, wasn't just isolated, it was pretty broadly based, and that most scientists had dismissed it. And uh, when I looked into it, it, it seemed like the best explanation is this multiverse idea and a simulated multiverse in particular. Because why do you run simulations a certain way, getting back to what I was saying earlier? Uh, it was, you change the variables, and you say, okay, where does this lead? And then you change the variables, and you say, where does this lead? And it turns out that is how we run simulations of everything from stock market prices to economic simulations um, to, you know, this is why we're better at forecasting the weather today than we were back in the 1970s, right? When you had snowstorms that came unexpectedly and killed a lot of people, we have better technology to run better simulations today. Uh, and, and so this took me right back to uh, what Philip K. Dick was really talking about, which wasn't just that we lived in a computer generated reality, but it was that variables could be changed and that would lead to slightly different timelines, or in some cases, very different timelines, and that these timelines could be stopped, rewound, and rerun. Uh, and so, you know, there's one other aspect of the, uh, the simulation hypothesis that I haven't talked about, but which is important. It's what I call the NPC versus the RPG version. And NPC stands for non-player characters within video games. And in that version of the simulation hypothesis, we're all just bits in the computer in the same way that we have you know, these uh, NPCs in our video games, like the person you're shooting at, the guy who tends the bar, the bank teller. In fact, there was a movie that came out last summer called Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds that was about an NPC who realizes that he's an NPC and that he's reliving the same events over and over again. Now, there's another version of the simulation hypothesis, which I call the RPG or the role-playing game version. Uh, where we exist outside the game and we have avatars or characters within the game uh, that we are playing. And so we have a memory of everything that happened to that character, but we have other memories. We remember the last time we played the game, right? And so we can remember all these different 
aspect of things that go beyond what somebody just in that timeline uh, would have said. And this, of course, is closer to the Matrix because the Matrix, they live outside the game and then they play characters inside the game. Uh, and it's actually much closer to what the, the religions of the world have been telling us is that we exist in some conscious form outside the game and we come in and we play a role and we completely identify with that role while we're here. Um, and so these two are not mutually exclusive. You can have a game that has both NPCs and uh, non-player characters and PCs or player characters or avatars, as they're commonly called. So anyway, all of this provided an interesting framework. And so feelings of deja vu, that things uh, were different or should be different, you know, all of those which are commonly referred to as glitches in the Matrix today, uh, you know, which came from that movie, but really the Wachowskis who created the Matrix uh, were inspired by the work of Philip K. Dick, and they said so uh, many times. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, these glitches in the Matrix uh, are very much clues that there's something else going on beyond that, which, you know, we think of as just a single timeline in a single physical world. So in my first book, The Simulation Hypothesis, I tried to show that the physical world is not what we think it is. And in the second book, that time is not what we think it is, right? Uh, which is also ties into this weirdness in quantum mechanics and the multiverse, this ability to rewind and rerun things in a simulated multiverse. And so it kind of all tied together, and that's why I ended up jumping back into, into the rabbit hole and writing the second book. You mentioned that when a variable is changed, it creates another timeline. So I guess my question is, if we're in this current timeline and something gets changed, creating uh, a different timeline, what happens to that other newly created timeline? Does it continue and carry on on its own developing as such? Well, that's a good question. And, and one of the big questions around timelines. And of course, you know, uh, I refer to science fiction a lot because sometimes the easier to talk about these these kind of strange concepts when you're dealing you know with Doctor Who or with the Terminator or you know with other time travel um, stories and in those or in Star Trek you know they go back and they change the past and suddenly the future is different right but if you draw that out which is part of what I did in the new book and it's what I call uh, the multiverse graph uh, what what it means is not that the the other timeline didn't happen, right? Clearly it happened. And in pretty much in all the good science fiction where there's a change in the past, somebody remembers it, right? Uh, but we have to change our definition of what happened means. Like, what does it mean to say that that timeline happened? What does it mean to say that this current reality actually is happening? It means that this is currently running at the moment, but that the previous timeline also ran up to a certain point. Now, what I'm putting forward in, in, in the simulated multiverse is, uh, because as computer scientists, you know, we don't like infinity, right? There's no such thing as infinite resources. Right. Uh, it just seems that way, right? So we conserve. And one of the ways we conserve is we can run one of those at a time, or we can run multiple ver versions at a time. But when we train our AI to play video games, for example, uh, like you've probably heard about AlphaGo, which is uh, built on Google's AI technology that beat the best Go players in the world. And of course, you know, 20 years ago, we had the first time uh, uh, a chess computer, IBM's Deep Blue, beat Gary Kasparov, who was the world champion at the time. Uh, and, and the way that these machines, these AI algorithms work is they run different scenarios. 
right? And so the reason AlphaGo got to be so good with a game like Go, which is actually much more complex than chess, was it played itself millions of times. And so what I would say is we have to change our views about what it means for this world to exist in a simulated universe. The fact that that ran and that this is running doesn't mean that one existed and the other didn't. This just happens to be the one that we are on at the moment. Some years ago on this show, we covered the topic of CERN. CERN is the site of the uh, Large Hadron Collider. And a lot of people in recent times have wondered if uh, whatever they're doing there may have affected the timeline we're living in now. Based on your research, do you find that CERN has that capability? I think, uh, you know, I've looked into that as one of the possible causes, you know, of the Mandela effect. And uh, I think uh, some people have theorized that CERN, when they were doing an experiment, uh, either ended up branching off an alternate world or connected with an alternate timeline, and that that's when things went off the rails, if you will. And it kind of reminded me of that uh, TV show called uh, Counterpart. You know, there they had like a version of Berlin and they, they basically branched off another timeline, another universe. And then there was a, a duplicate version of each person. But up until the point of the branch, they were all the same people. And so, you know, I looked into it. I mean, I didn't find that they have that capability in a knowing or, or witting way. So it's possible in some unwitting way <laughs> that they were able to do this. Uh, but I guess the conclusion that I came to is that this branching of timelines is not that unusual, that it may be happening all the time anyway. And so it's very possible that this particular set of experiments, when they smashed together you know, different uh, particles, uh, ended up changing the values of certain particles and that that results a different timeline than if they hadn't necessarily done that. And so now we're back to this idea of changing variables and having them go off in different directions. Uh, so, you know, I came to the conclusion that even though that may have accelerated some things, that we are, when you look at the Mandela effect, it's not just something that took place in 2012. It, you know, these things go way back, and there are lots of different Mandela effects. So it's much more explainable if there are multiple timelines, not just two timelines or with a single branch. Yeah, I was going to comment that it's funny how a few years ago, back during election time, and Donald Trump won, I remember hearing a lot of people saying that they felt like we were living in some type of alternate reality. And I even remember seeing some memes on the internet liking the situation to what we saw in the movie Back to the Future Part 2, where Biff, Marty McFly's nemesis, becomes a rich and powerful individual. Taking this topic into a bit of a fun pop culture direction, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine about your book, and I was telling him I was getting ready for this interview, and he kind of wondered out loud if this could possibly explain what a lot of people have noted about the TV show The Simpsons. It seems like The Simpsons have a knack for predicting certain events. So if reality is programmed, and these programs are being run, is it possible then to look into the future, so to speak? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, uh, you know, I, I think that the Back to the Future is a, is a great analogy, right? And, you know, many people did say, are we on an alternate timeline <laughs> when Trump won? Or is there an alternate timeline 
uh, where Hillary won in 2016, right? right. <laughs> so you can look at it either way to say, what is the real timeline? What is the alternate timeline? Uh, wh- what I'm putting forward in the simulated multiverse is perhaps both of those timelines ran. And for whatever reason, we happen to be in the one where Trump won, uh, because maybe it led to some different outcomes, or maybe it's still computing and we don't know what the outcomes will be. Um, and, and, and so that's maybe a different way of looking at it. But I definitely thought about the Simpsons when you said that, you know, because they had that scene like, you know, a long time ago with Trump at Trump tower announcing his presidency, which was so similar to, you know, when he announced his presidential run in, uh, back in 2015, I guess, or, or early 2016. Um, and so, you know, how does this relate to certain paranormal phenomenon, like remembering the future, uh, right? And I think there, there is an interesting correlation uh, where people are able to sense uh, what might happen. And the question is, how does that work? And I think we have to redefine our, uh, uh, our understanding of what is the future and what is the past. Uh, and quantum mechanics also raises a whole bunch of questions about this. And there are certain interpretations of quantum mechanics say that there are these different possible futures out there and they are sending back information to the present and that we are then making choices based upon that information. Well, you know, how do these futures exist if they haven't happened yet? Well, they must have happened in some timeline, right? In order for them to send information back to us. And then that's, I think, you know, where we get into this, the sense that, that I take the view that, you know, not only has the future may have already happened, but that we may already have played that future. And some of us will remember that it kind of leaks through our consciousness, because even though it's, we haven't quite gotten there yet in this play of the game at this moment in time, we may be, we may have a consciousness outside that is able to watch, you know, how that entire game plays out. Uh, and it turns out if you look at, uh, again, turning back to near-death experiencers, while most of them talk about the life review, some of them also talk about an alternate life review or a life preview, right? Which is this idea that they say, well, if you had made this other choice, then this is what would have happened. And they talk about seeing it, and it looks just like the life review, which did happen. Well, now that's strange. How can you watch something that didn't happen and have it look and play out just the same exact way as something that did happen? Unless our definition of happen, this happened, is wrong in some way, or, or rather incomplete. And so this sets up the ability for us to potentially be able to peak. And those of us maybe who, uh, uh, you know, have a clear channel to see these events, whether in our dreams or in an altered state or just unconsciously, some people are just better at it uh, than others, right? And what we're seeing are actually possible or probable futures. Uh, and one of those may end up coming to pass. And so we may say that's kind of strange that we're, we're on that, that same timeline. Like, like the guy who wrote the story about a ship named the Titan that was the biggest ocean liner that ever was built. And it, you know, hit an iceberg in the North Atlantic in the middle of spring. And he wrote it in the 1890s, right? And then it actually happened in 1912. Uh, it wasn't the Titan. It was the Titanic, right? <laughs> it was, there right. were small differences, but not a lot. Yeah. It reminded me also of the story you included in your book of a woman that during a near-death experience, 
She was given the choice to stay or go back to her life. And she was shown what her children's lives would have been without her. And she says that she saw how her children turned out if they had grown up without a mother. So she made the decision to come back. Right. You hear that with with certain near-death experiencers where they were given a choice. Uh, And, you know, you also hear from... Daniel Brinkley and many of these others that they didn't want to come back right? <laughs> because they saw, you know, the amount of suffering and challenges that happens in this life, but they were shown exactly what would happen if they didn't come back. And it was their choice, but particularly with a mother and her children, right? Clearly she didn't want that particular future to happen, but that, but again, how could she have seen it if it wasn't played out? And that's the whole point of the simulated multiverse is you can run it forward at any point and see what would have happened. Uh, and you also see this in the life preview. Like there's a great book called Journey of Souls, um, which was written in the 90s by Dr. Michael Newton, where he you know hypnotized patients and they remembered uh, their pre-life planning from before the time they were born. Right, and and in during that time, they're able to see like a grid these major decision points and they can see what life it would be like in say New York if they made this particular choice and then they decided to live that particular life. And, but again, it was as if they were actually watching New York. It wasn't like, Oh, you know, a description, right. Of what would happen. It was, they were actually watching the events unfold. Now, how can that happen unless somebody is actually running those events uh, and the people are making the choices that they would have made uh, under that particular timeline. And, and so the simulated multiverse provides us with a framework that bridges that gap, but also looks at technology and video games and quantum mechanics and how the spiritual fits in with the scientific and the technological. Talking about this and reading your book, I began to feel like a lot of people probably have felt at different points in their lives. And that's asking themselves the question, what if, you know, what if I had done A instead of B? Or what if I had chosen this career over this other one? You begin to question your decisions and how different your life could have turned out. And I really love the way how in the last chapter of the book called Stepping Back, What Does It All Mean?, You wrote something that I think that anybody having anxiety over the what-ifs in their lives will find some comfort in these words. And if I may quote, you write, The truth is, we all have challenges at some point in our lives, whether we're facing racism, health problems, relationship issues, family issues, physical violence, money problems, emotional issues, not to mention loss of loved ones and so on. Each of us, like a video game character, has certain strengths and weaknesses. And for whatever reason, our challenges are also often tailored uniquely to our personalities. I feel like this was your way of reassuring the reader that regardless of these other possible timelines, we are living in the one timeline that is appropriate and fitting to us. Is that about correct? Yeah, absolutely. And and the way that video games work is, you know, you have certain achievements and quests. And, uh, you know, if, if the game is just idyllic and you have no challenges, well, that doesn't make for a very interesting game. And if you actually remember in the Matrix sequels, they said the first version of the Matrix was 
that kind of uh, ideal life where there were no problems and the human mind didn't really accept it. And so they came up with a matrix that was much more droll, et cetera. But, you know, it's really my way uh, and my perspective on life has changed a little bit to say, well, if I'm having these challenges at some level, my character must have signed up for these challenges, right? In the same way that when you have quests and, and achievements in video games, you choose the next challenge. And it's appropriate for your character, just like an old, the old Dungeons and Dragons. You know, we have characters that have more strength uh, or characters that, you know, maybe are higher charisma or, you know, higher magical power or whatever the case may be. You have these different attributes. And not all of us have all the same attributes. I mean, I think that's something that, you know, we can all uh, confidently say we have certain things that we're interested in, which are different than the things somebody else might be interested in. And so there's this tailoring that happens. Um, And within the simulated multiverse idea, you can also kind of take comfort in that probably all those other possibilities are also have already played out. And this is the timeline that was, was thought to be the better timeline for you the player of the video game, even with all the crazy challenges that we have. So it's a way to kind of relax and not get, you know, uh, too upset about things uh, when things happen that are not going well. And also not to spend so much time saying, what if I had done that? What if I had done that? Well, relax. You might already have. But for whatever reason, this is the timeline you're on now. That is a great outlook to have, especially in the challenging times that we are living in today with everything going on. I feel like everyone's lives have been shaken in a way that none of us really saw coming. So I agree that we should take some solace that there is a reason why we're not in those alternate timelines and we're in this one. Riz, the title of the book is The Simulated Multiverse. An MIT computer scientist explores parallel universes, the simulation hypothesis, quantum computing, and the Mandela Effect. Where can people pick up a copy and where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so you, they can get you know copies of the book uh, on Amazon or uh, pretty much on all the, the standard book sites uh, or even within certain local bookstores, uh, depending on, on, on where they are or Barnes & Noble as well. And they can find me. Uh, my website is called zenentrepreneur.com. Um, and uh, that was based on uh, the title of one of my previous books called Zen Entrepreneurship. Um, and uh, they can also follow me on Twitter uh, at Riz Stanford, like the university, R-I-Z-S-T-A-N-F-O-R-D. Very cool. Riz, thank you so much for having this mind-blowing conversation with us. The very real likelihood that we're living in a simulation and having these multiple timelines really opens your mind to other ways of thinking about our reality. And I think people are going to find it very engaging exploring these possibilities. So thank you so much for your time and for joining us tonight. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That was Rizwan Burke, author of The Simulated Multiverse. Be sure to pick up a copy of this book. I really enjoy reading it. It was definitely one of those books that challenges the way you think. And I think it's really incredible that we are living in a time where science and technology is starting to explore the possibilities that our reality could be a type of simulation. You can also check out Riz's first book, The Best Selling The Simulation Hypothesis, if you want to go further down that rabbit hole. 
We covered a lot of ground tonight, so I want to thank everyone for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope uh, it left you thinking. And uh, and if you miss any portion of tonight's show, you will find it posted on our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash WOTR radio. Don't forget to subscribe and hit the bell. You can also subscribe to uh, West of the Rockies on Amazon Music, iTunes, Stitcher, and Everywhere else you get your podcast, just search West of the Rockies or WOTR Radio, and we should be popping up there. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WOTR Radio. Don't forget to like the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash West of the Rockies. And until next time, take care, be safe, God bless, don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. Until then, bye bye. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.